It doesn't happen often, praise God. But every once in a while, um, I'll start to put a message together. Usually I start on Tuesday because I try to take Monday off. That's kind of like my real Sabbath, if you know what I mean. Because this is a little bit more like work sometimes than, than a Sabbath. And so on Monday, I try not to answer emails. Uh, on Sunday, I look at my texts real quickly. And if it's not urgent, I just don't answer. So if you're sending me a text on Monday and you don't get an answer, know that it's not because of you but it's because I'm trying to take a rest. But sometimes, as the week goes on, Tuesday, then Wednesday, I spend a lot of time preparing the first draft. Every once in a while, on Wednesday afternoon, as I'm going through my draft, I say this to myself. That stinks. And this was one of those weeks. I mean, it was theologically correct, it was academically correct. It was grammatically okay. But if the message doesn't speak to me, how can it speak to you? And so what do you do when you don't know what to do? Does anybody know what you do when you don't know what to do? Pray. So I prayed. Lord, I'm dry this week. Now, I will admit I have a little bit of reason to be dry. I mean, last week we had a graduation party for my son Sam with 7,000 people in our house and 4,000 pounds of hamburgers. This week we have my son Zachariah's fiance Elizabetta staying at our house. Oh, by the way, they're getting married tomorrow. We have, yes, we have wedding preparations to make, a wedding homily to put together. If you don't know what homily is, it's a Holy word for a message, I guess. I don't know. And on top of all that, yesterday, my son Ryan, his wife Jessica, my grandson Bencion, and my grandson Yoshiahu came down from Chicago, including my newest granddaughter, Talia Rose, who I saw for the first time yesterday. Two months old, and she already weighs 10 pounds. The kid's going to be a giant. I hope also a giant for the Lord. And so I had a little reason to be a little dry with all of this coming up. But the Lord said, you know, your messages each week don't have to be really involved. And they don't have to be really deep. What they have to be is real. And he said to me, in order to understand what Paul is writing in Romans 9, verses 30 to 33, that's where we'll be this morning as we finish the ninth chapter of Romans. In order to understand Romans 9, don't you think you need to understand a little bit about the author? Now, actually, Paul's not the author. God's the author. Paul's just the deliverer of the words. But still, God chose to use Paul to deliver these words. I think we need to know a little bit about Paul in order to understand why he writes the way he does, what he writes, why he uses scripture from the Hebrew, uh, the Hebrew Bible, uh, and so on. I mean, if you're, if you're reading J.D. Salinger's Catcher in the Rye, you really need to know a little bit about J.D. Salinger to understand the message of Catcher in the Rye. If you're reading George Orwell, you need to understand a little bit about him in order to understand what 1984 is all about. And you need to know a little bit about Paul in order to understand Paul. Well, Paul was born, by the way, in Asia Minor. Did you know that? 
It's what we would call Turkey today. And he was born to a very well-respected Jewish family. As a matter of fact, they were devout Jews. Paul was a devout Jew. And he became, in fact, a devout Pharisee while he was still living in Asia Minor. But he was sent by his parents and went to Jerusalem to study under someone called Gamaliel. Does that name strike a bell? Rav Gamaliel, Rabbi Gamaliel. He's quoted in the Passover Haggadah, and he's also quoted in the scriptures as the one saying, don't do anything to this guy, because if he's wrong, he'll get punished anyway, and if he's right, you don't want to mess with him. And so he studied under what I consider to be the foremost scholar, the foremost rabbi, and the foremost teacher of his time. By the way, Shaul, that's his Hebrew name, Saul, hated the believers. I mean, hated the believers. How much did he hate them, you might ask? Well, for one thing, he participated in the execution of Stephen. If you remember, he was the coat check guy standing by as Stephen was killed. And Paul was determined to either murder or arrest all the Jews who believed in Yeshua. That is until his Damascus Road experience. And I just want to read for you, because it's such an amazing section, from Acts chapter 9, verse 1, all the way to verse 19. Bear with me. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, by the way, that's what faith in Yeshua was called back day, the way. Sorry to disappoint you, it wasn't called Christianity. Whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. What does light do? It dispels darkness, doesn't it? Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Yeshua, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And so he, Paul, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And the Lord said to him, arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. I find it interesting that the light first shined on Paul so that darkness is dispelled, but he still didn't know what steps he needed to take. I don't know about you, but that's my testimony as well. The light shined on me, and I still didn't know what to do. And it took time and study and friends in the Lord to direct me in the right path. Let's see what it took to direct Shaul, Saul, in the right path. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice but seeing no one, Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were open, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and he was there three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. You think the number three is there by accident? I don't either. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas. For one called Saul of Tarsus, behold, he is praying. 
What was Saul doing during his three days of blindness? Praying. What do you think Jonah was doing during his three days in the whale's belly, the fish's belly? Probably praying. I wish it had taken me only three days, but during my eight weeks of indecision, I was praying as well. And in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. And Ananias answered, Are you sure, Lord? No, that's not what he said. He said, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go. For he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Yeshua who appeared to you on the road as you came has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. And when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. It's my hope and my prayer that everyone here has had their own personal Damascus Road experience that the light of God has shined, shone on your darkness, that you maybe didn't know what to do, that you spent time in prayer until finally the scales of spiritual blindness fell off of your eyes so that you would see clearly and know without a shadow of a doubt that he is King and Lord and Savior. Amen? So what else do we need to know about Paul when we read his writings? Well, we need to know that he was a Torah scholar. I sometimes, and boy, I'll get myself in trouble. Actually, I don't care if I get myself in trouble. JC, can you make sure that this message goes out to the entire world? I go to too many churches that think that the new covenant is all you need to read. But Paul over and over and over again refers to the Hebrew scriptures. Why? Number one, he was amazingly read in the Hebrew scriptures. Two, he understood the scriptures now with unscaled eyes. And three, he understood the importance of the Hebrew scriptures in revealing the truth in the New Covenant scriptures. And in this short passage... Romans 9, verses 30 to 33, we see his use of both the prophet Hosea and the prophet Isaiah in understanding or bringing to our understanding this concept that we sang about this morning and that the walk through the Bible talked about this morning, that it was never meant to be a Jewish-only way. It was always meant to be a Jew and Gentile way, and the way is the same for both of them, But the Jews, for the most part, didn't have it figured out at the beginning. And so let's read Romans 9, beginning in verse 30. What shall we say then? Obviously, this is a hypothetical question. Paul was addressing it to this predominantly Gentile group in the congregation in Rome. And he was saying this to introduce his argument of comparison 
these four verses are an argument of comparison. It's an argument of Jews versus Gentiles, but most importantly, it's an argument of the righteousness of faith versus the righteousness of the law. The righteousness of faith versus the righteousness of the law. He continues, What shall we say then? That Gentiles, who did not pursue righteousness, have obtained to righteousness even the righteousness of faith. To which I say, not fair. How can you get something that you're not pursuing? But still, it was God's plan, as we will see later in the quotes from Isaiah and Hosea, that righteousness, righteousness by faith, should come to the Gentiles also. It was not just for the ethnic community known as the Jewish people. It was a righteousness of faith. And Gentiles, Paul says, have obtained this righteousness of faith. But what are we to say about that? They didn't even pursue it. Does anyone have a guess as to why the Gentiles did not pursue a righteousness of faith? They had no God to pursue. They had lots of gods, but no real God to pursue. And the righteousness that the scripture talks about here is not a righteousness that needs to be described in moral terms. It is not a righteousness that says I'm good versus bad or I'm better versus worth. It's a righteousness that needs to be understood. Please listen to me. You won't understand immediately, but you will understand hopefully as I explain. It's a righteousness that needs to be understood in covenantal terms. Covenantal terms. And this week's Parsha, Leviticus, talks, explains, indicates, and shows what the covenantal relationship with God is supposed to be. You will be my people, and I will be your God. We'll come to Romans 11, specifically chapters, verses 11 to 15, where we find out how God uses the national rejection of the Messiah by the Jewish people in order for Yeshua to come to the Gentiles. I'm not going to spend time on that right now. We'll get there. But the righteousness that the, the Gentiles received was a righteousness that came by faith. They had no law to follow before Messiah Yeshua was revealed to them. So what shall we say then that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained to righteousness even the righteousness of faith? The righteousness of faith, verse 31, but Israel pursuing the is anybody following me in their Bible or their what is the next word? Pursuing the law of righteousness has not attained to the law of righteousness. Two very important points to understand from that verse. Number one, they were pursuing legal righteousness versus the righteousness of faith. And number two, the reason they hadn't attained to the legal righteousness that they asked for is because that's an impossible task. There is no one without sin. You know, there's an amazing scripture, a verse in scripture, where Paul says, you know, you guys, you think you got it so good. 
your pedigree doesn't match my pedigree. And then he uses this phrase to describe himself. According to the law, found blameless. How does that happen? Do you think that Paul never sinned in his life? Obviously, he sinned in his life. He was born human. But you see, the law, if followed meticulously, even has sacrifice for sin. Oh, you don't, you're not getting this. The law even puts provision for messing up. And so when I mess up, this is the sacrifice. When I mess up this way, this is the sacrifice. When I mess up this way, this is the sacrifice. And as long as you are legalistically, religiously, and I use that in a very strict Webster definition term, as long as you're pursuing the law in that way, all you can claim is that you've kept the law but you have not come into a covenantal relationship with God, which is the righteousness of God that is a righteousness of faith that can only be had by a personal relationship between the God of creation and the Son of the God of creation. Amen? Amen. Verse 32. I love this word. Why? How many of you have children? How many of you hate that word? Why? We need to go now. Why? You need to button your shirt at least up to your right here. Why? You can't go to Son of David congregation in totally ripped jeans. Why? You need to brush your teeth every day. Why? Paul asks the same questions. Why? And then he answers. Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law. If you remember one thing this morning, please remember this. The law and faith are not contradictory. It's the works of the law and faith that are contradictory. If the law was so bad, why does Jeremiah write in Jeremiah 31 that God will write the law on our hearts and our minds? And he says, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. It's because the law is supposed to be heart-written and not tablet-written. It's supposed to be heart-written and not written on papyrus or pieces of paper. And we follow the law because we understand our relationship with God. We don't do the works of the law in order to have a relationship with God. Are you following me? Because if you do the works of the law in order to have a relationship with God, you might as well in your prayers say, your honor, instead of our Father. Do you follow me? Paul's argument here is so simple yet so important. The conflict is between faith and works, not between faith and the law. I I had forgotten that Galatians is going to be our walk through the Bible today. He perfectly put it. I don't know how many of you saw it. He said, the law is good. The law is righteous. The law is wonderful. But the law not only points out your sin, it also gives you a way of life to be in commune with God if... You love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, because on these two heart commandments, on these two covenantal commandments, on these two relationships, 
the vertical one and the horizontal one, all of the Torah and the prophets rest. It's not about crossing every I and crossing every T and dotting every I and crossing every T. It's about understanding that he crossed the T's and dotted the I's for you, and now you just have to walk with him. And as you walk with him, if the law is written on your heart and on your mind, then our desire is to keep it, not in order to get close to him, but because we're already close to him by the death, burial, and resurrection of his son, if we believe. So Paul continues. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law, as it is written, and here he quotes from both the Psalms and Isaiah. Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense. What's the obvious question? What's the stumbling stone? What's the rock of offense? The stumbling stone is the inability to follow the law perfectly. And the rock of offense is that we still try to do it in order to have a relationship with God. Tell you a personal story. As you know, Tina and I and the family all lived in Jerusalem from 2007 to 2011. There's a neighborhood in Jerusalem called Mea Sha'arim, which literally means a hundred gates. I guess at one time there were a hundred gates there. There's not a hundred gates now. It is a community of strict Hasidic Jews. By the way, there are about six or seven denominations of them. And each one of them doesn't get along with the other one. So if, if you're one of the dominant denominations that wears a black coat and black pants, your daughter can't marry the son of a denomination who wears a gray coat and gray pants. And oh, by the way, if your denomination wears gray pants and they tuck them into your socks, you can't marry someone who wears gray pants, but they wear them over top of their socks. That's the first problem. Second problem is right along the edge of this community, there's a street called Rechov Nevi'im, or Prophet's Street. It basically separates Mea Sharim from the retail area of Jerusalem. It's a very busy road. People drive up and down it all the time. Of most importance, the best falafel shop in Jerusalem is right on Prophet Street. It's a little hole in the wall. And by the way, people line up, and as you're standing in line, they give you falafel balls to make sure you don't go away. And you don't go away, if you know what I mean. Anyway, all of a sudden, the Hasidic Jews on that street decided they were going to get together for one campaign. And the campaign was, you're not allowed to drive your car anymore on Prophet Street on the Sabbath. Now, Prophet Street is not in your community. Prophet Street was on the border of your community. And so what they did is they brought their little children with them. If you can imagine, of course, no women, no, no, no girls, but the men and boys all under the age of 13, 12, 11, 10 years old. And as you drove along on Shabbat on Prophet Street, the little boys would take eggs and throw them on your car, yelling, Shabbos, Shabbos. And I was with Sam one day, and he said, that's no way to keep the Sabbath. 
But you see, they were so intent on the legal understanding of the Sabbath, so intent on the fact that even someone driving along the outskirts of their community would make their community a non-Shabbat-keeping community, that what they did was they broke the rules of the Sabbath in their protests. What kind of a way is that to celebrate the Sabbath? By throwing eggs at cars and having your children yell at them. Praise God, as far as I know, there were no accidents. That's the stumbling block of offense. The very law that couldn't bring salvation is the law that they tried to use in order to bring salvation. And we'll read about that some more in Romans chapter 10. He continues, And whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Do you see the contrast? The contrast is between the works of the law, the stumbling stone and the rock of offense, and salvation by faith. Now, please remember what James wrote. Faith without works is... That's my translation. It's a dead faith. It's a faith to which God, I believe, says, so what? Show me your faith, I'll show you my works. Show you my works, I'll show you my faith. You know the section. We may get to that in the future. And then verse 33 puts that punctuation on it. I think I missed a verse somewhere. Hold on. That's what you get when you have a marriage coming up. So let me go to the scripture. That's always a good place to go. I missed verses 26. I wanted to um, read those because they're the beginning point of what Paul says, what shall we say then? And he's responding to verses from Hosea and verses from Isaiah. Verse 25, he says, I will call them my people who were not my people. That's obviously referring to the Gentiles. And her beloved who was not beloved. It's from Hosea, chapter 2, 23. Verse 26, and it shall come to pass in the place where it is said to them, you are not my people, lo ami, not my people. There they will be called the sons of the living God. God's plan was always for all of humanity. Verse 27, Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel. You see verse 25 and 26 were concerning the Gentile nations. Now 20. Seven is concerning Israel. Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant shall be saved. By the way, if there's a remnant, there also has to be a non-remnant. Many places in Scripture talks about the fact that not all Israel will have come to faith by the time the Messiah returns. Some people argue that only a tenth will come to faith. That's what's prophesied in Isaiah 6. Anybody read through the book of Isaiah recently? That's a hard book to read through. In my scripture reading, the last two books I read was was John. I like that book. That's fun to read through. And then I read through Isaiah. Are you kidding me? Judgment on, fill in the blank. Judgment on, fill in the blank. Judgment on, fill in the blank. Isaiah 6, when God calls Isaiah, and Isaiah says, here I am, send me. God says, okay, I want you to go to this people and talk to deaf ears so they become deafer, blind eyes so they'll become blinder, and dead hearts 
And Isaiah asks a wonderful question, how long? And God answers, till a tenth remain. Paul writes in Romans 9 as he's quoting from Romans, though the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, the remnant shall be saved, for he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness. God's righteousness, not man's righteousness. Because the Lord will make a short work on the earth. And then he finishes, as Isaiah said before, unless the Lord of the Sabbath had left a seed, we would have become like Sodom and we would have been made like Gomorrah. The seed is the remnant of faithful Jews that has always been there. Always been there. You remember the story of Elijah? How he defeats the prophets of Baal? And he sits in a cave having a pity party? And God says, Elijah, get a life. There have always been a remnant according to the election of grace. That remnant, that seed, is what promises that Israel will come to faith and have the righteousness of God. The word of God, going all the way back to the blessings God gave in the covenant to Abraham, is that the blessings would be to you and all the families of the earth. All the nations of the earth. It's one of the reasons I love this congregation. What's your home nation? Puerto Rico, what's your home nation? Oh, she's not looking at me. Who else is from another nation beside the United States? Kenya. Mexico. Romania. Ghana. Venezuela. We pray for your country. Where's Safa? Egypt. In you, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. By the way, this message doesn't have an ending. Just a praise to God for his perfect plan as prophesied in the Hebrew scriptures which is why Paul always uses the Hebrew scriptures to explain his new covenant understanding because without the Hebrew scriptures, you can't understand it. Without the Hebrew scriptures, the New Testament floats on its own foundation, which is impossible. Without the Hebrew scriptures, there is no understanding of Israel's place in God's plan to reclaim his kingdom on earth. And without the Hebrew scriptures... New Testament preachers only, New Testament only preachers, skip over Romans eleven twenty six. Who knows it by heart? Anybody? And then call Yisrael Yivasha. All Israel will be saved. Of course, if you don't believe in the Hebrew scriptures, Israel has now become the church. And that makes perfect sense. Problem is you can't start reading a book two-thirds of the way through to the end and think you've read the whole book. Amen? So let's pray. Avinu Malkinu, Father, King,
Savior, Redeemer, Convictor, Comforter, Healer, Guide, Light, everything that is everything needed for eternal life, God of creation. How holy is your name? How awesome it is to even consider the thought that you have invited us to be part of your family. That you would be our God and we would be your people. And Father, your kingdom is not a kingdom of rules and regulations. It's a kingdom of relationship. We don't have to fear, Lord, that if we break one of the rules, we'll be cut off forever. Your grace is far greater than that. And so we thank you for your grace, for your son, for his sacrifice, and for the eternal life that it gives. And we pray this in his name. Amen.